Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. Well, Helen Keller certainly deserves her credit. There are too many people that don't think there's anybody else in the world that's deafblind except her, but there are loads of other deafblind people. The journey of a woman who speaks normally, but who's been both deaf and blind most of her life. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Those of us who take our five senses for granted can barely imagine the world of silent darkness inhabited by a person who is simultaneously unable to hear and see. Helen Keller's amazing story of deaf blindness was memorialized in the Academy Award-winning 1962 film The Miracle Worker. Now the number of people with this dual disability is rapidly rising as the elderly population grows. Joe McNulty is executive director of the Helen Keller National Center in Sands Point, New York. I had seen an advertisement for a mobility instructor. They were looking to hire mobility instructors who are people who teach blind and deafblind people how to travel, how to use a cane, etc. And the requirements in those days back in the um, 60s and 70s were that you had to have a physical education degree, and I had been a phys ed major. So I went in, um, and it was 40 years ago. And I interviewed at the Helen Keller Center. They had just opened up. And I was interviewed by a gentleman who himself was completely deaf and totally blind. And I communicated with him by printing letters on the palm of his hand. And he had speech so I could understand what he was saying. And it was just um, one of those, you know, memorable experiences. I had never met a deaf person, let alone a deafblind person. I had it once described to me by a friend who himself is deafblind, and he said that he could be in Yankee Stadium among 60,000 people and might as well be home in his bedroom alone unless someone reaches out and makes physical contact with him to let him know what's going on. It's that isolating when you are without sound and uh, sight. The population of Americans with combined auditory and visual impairment, according to a recent study, could reach 1.2 million in coming years. This includes individuals who are significantly or totally deafblind. 
they will be up against significant challenges. Well, the average person doesn't know how to communicate with a deaf person, let alone a deafblind person. People don't know sign language. To me, um, the biggest positive has been the development and the evolution of technology. That there are devices now, many of them portable, that a deafblind person can take with them to go into a restaurant, to go into a store, and they can communicate with a sighted hearing person, be it a waitress or a clerk at the counter, by typing into this machine, and the letters appear so the sighted person can read it. The person prints back, types back to the deafblind person, and it comes out in Braille so that they can read what's going on. So the deafblind person does not have to have speech. The sighted hearing person does not have to know sign language, and they can communicate back and forth. Several years ago in Los Angeles at the Braille Institute, I had a remarkable conversation using this unusual mode of communication with a deafblind woman named Mary Gillespie. I remember one time when I was about 12, I was in a group at school that was similar to the Girl Scouts. We were going to a special meeting one evening, and they got to discussing Helen Keller. And I thought, oh my gosh, of all the disabilities in the whole wide world, that's one combination I sure wouldn't want. But I've got it, and it doesn't bother me at all. When Mary entered the room with her guide dog, Max, a staff member at Braille Institute eased Mary into the chair at a table where I had placed her microphone. We shook hands warmly. But when the interview began, because Mary was unable to see or hear me, she couldn't tell exactly where I was seated and angled her head in the wrong direction. It took me a few moments to adjust to this extraordinary dialogue. For the first ten years of my life, I was a healthy, normal, loudmouthed, tree-climbing tomboy. Then when I was 10, I got several illnesses that hit all at the same time, like rheumatic fever and strep throat and some other things. It didn't, the rheumatic fever didn't affect my heart, but it did start uh, causing me to gradually lose my sight. Then when I was 19, I went to the ear doctor for an ear infection, and he told me then there was damage to the nerve, too. So I lost my sight and hearing gradually. But since Mary had already learned how to speak normally, her speech today sounds very natural. Even though being totally deaf, she cannot now hear what she's saying. After I graduated from high school, my hearing was getting progressively worse. So when it became apparent that I was uh, going to be married, I talked to the ear doctor about the future, and he said I wouldn't lose my hearing and to go ahead and get married. So I was married, and then a year and two days after we were married, Catherine Estelle was born, and 16 months after that, Connie Lucille completed our Four Corner World. Then when Kathy was two and a half and Connie was exactly one year old to that month, I lost my ability to understand speech. I 
I was able to interact with Mary Gillespie by using the keyboard. I typed my questions, simultaneously speaking them aloud. In front of Mary was a display that rapidly rendered my typed words into the language of raised dots used in Braille. Within seconds, Mary could feel my question in Braille form. For many of our listeners, your disability would seem absolutely overwhelming. How do you meet the challenge? With a husband, a home, and two little girls to take care of, I finally realized that the best thing to do is just take one day at a time. We overcame the obstacles as they arose. So we just relaxed and took it easy, and it all straightened out eventually. Didn't even really seem like problems because we just accepted them as they came. Although Mary's positive attitude is palpable and quite endearing, deafblind people must navigate their lives through considerable barriers of communication and mobility. Joe McNulty of the Helen Keller National Center. If you are blind and hearing, you, you obviously use the hearing to help you locate and um, they help you cross streets um, to help you pick up a number of things that um, it's, it's called facial vision. It's actually an auditory that, that you're benefiting from a change in sounds. Uh, none of that is available to someone who is deafblind. So a deafblind person is dependent on the public to help them cross streets. Also, um, unless the person who is helping them is comfortable enough holding their hand and printing on their palm or something like that, they really aren't able to communicate back and forth. Typically, someone who is totally deaf and blind who's traveling uses pre-written cards that will be, if, if I were to have to go to work every day, I would be shown how to get to the corner to the bus stop. I would stand there when the bus came, I would hand a card to the driver telling him what stop I want to get off. I'd sit behind the driver and he'd tap me. When I got off and I had to cross a street, I'd hold another card up saying, would you please help me cross Main Street? The person would take, my, take the card, I would take their hand, we would cross over, and ha however much assistance I would need on that route, that's how many cards I would have. How about availability of dogs? There are some dog schools that will give dogs to deafblind people. Again, it takes a certain type of dog to have a deafblind person as a master because there's additional pressure on the dog due to the master's uh, hearing loss, the owner's hearing loss. So is use of guide dogs by deafblind people unusual? Compared to blind hearing people, yes, it's unusual. But there, it's a growing population. More and more people are starting to use uh, the dogs. One of the hardest things for me right now is interpreters. Mary Gillespie in Los Angeles. I am in several organizations, both state organizations and national organizations. Anytime I go to any meetings or conventions, it's very difficult to find interpreters. All the deafblind that I have talked to say the same thing. They're very first need is for interpreters. Are there any other 
challenges you find particularly hard? Yes, mobility. And that's another thing I'm on the warpath about. The deafblind are now, it's slowly, but the deafblind are coming into their own now because education is somewhat better for them. And with the computer now, employment challenges are coming along too. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Journey of the Deafblind, check our website, humanmedia.org. Our modern understanding of people with disabilities is a relatively recent step forward. Not long ago, deaf-blind people cut off from normal communication were relegated to such tasks as sorting silverware at institutions. Use of the Braille alphabet developed by the Frenchman Louis Braille would not be standardized until the 20th century. Back in the early 20s, there were several different types of Braille. Francis Daniels, longtime staff member of Braille Institute in Los Angeles. For example, if you lived in New York, you learned New York Point. If you lived in Kentucky, you learned another form of Braille. And in 1929, uh, a group of people, including Helen Keller, testified before Congress to try to make a Braille standard. And if it weren't for that, then Mary would be having to learn the equivalent of two languages. I, I think that's the biggest thing that Helen Keller has done for the deafblind here. To standardize the, the, the standardized Braille. And I think also to, to believe in, in human dignity, in being able to have a person be treated like anybody else, to have the same capabilities, the same opportunities, regardless if they can see or hear or not. I think that's, that's the biggest thing, is that someone like Mary can uh, get access to information, to be able to, to learn to be able to function like anybody else. Today, the Americans with Disabilities Act, first signed by President George H.W. Bush in 1990, guarantees basic rights, including rehabilitation and education, to disabled people. Joe McNulty of the Helen Keller National Center. There are approximately 10,000 children being served under the category of death blindness by the federally funded state projects. But then you have a number of other people, many of whom were born deaf and are experiencing uh, vision problems as they go through adulthood. Many blind people start to experience hearing problems as they reach adulthood and start to go through. And then you have individuals who suffer deaf blindness as a result of trauma. It could be a car accident, a gunshot wound, um, a reaction to, um, you know, People have had meningitis. There are a number of medical conditions that can lead to deaf blindness. Causes can range from prenatal infection to childhood illness, like the fever that wasted Helen Keller's eyes and ears at 19 months of age, to a genetic condition known as Usher syndrome. But it is human beings who walk through life with these limitations. Joe McNulty. My experience in 30-plus years is that deaf blind people are just like sighted hearing people, you have all types of personalities and all sorts of um, 
abilities to, to some are more perceptive than others, some are, some are more intuitive than others. One thing that I have noticed, though, is that when you are deafblind, you are not sidetracked or influenced by someone's physical appearance, uh, the color of their hair, whether they're attractive, you know, what kind of shape they're in, etc. You get right to the core of the human contact and how does this person treat me? Do they do the things that they promised they would do for me and with me? And they're not, um, as I said, distracted is the word I would use by the um, the physical appearance and, and, and the external things that we sighted people are often influenced by. And so how does not being distracted in that way uh, affect uh, the human being who happens to be deaf and blind? Well, I think it goes to the core of the, the, the basic relationship is you're communicating with someone, and it's a very intimate form of communication. You're touching the person. You, they are either you are either printing letters into their palm, you are either making the shape of letters into their hand that they would then spell with you, or you are actually signing, and they are tracing the signs as they follow your hand movements. When you work with a deafblind person, those traditional barriers are broken down, and there's there's direct contact. So that leads to a sense of intimacy. And the other part of it is is just if I'm meeting with someone and I say that I'm going to help them or meet them at 7 o'clock or take them somewhere, for the deafblind person, it's either they did it or they didn't do it. I wonder what, what we with normal hearing and sight can learn about life from people who are deaf and blind. That goes beyond deaf blindness. I think that a lot of people today are looking at um, this whole notion of self-empowerment of people with disabilities, that there is just a mindset in our country that people with disabilities can't. We look at what they're not able to do. We don't naturally focus on their strengths and their assets and their their capabilities. Um, I, I don't think the average person in the street sees someone with a disability as their equal. This may seem like an odd question, but is there a positive side to your situation that people who see and hear might not realize? I feel there is at least one for any disability, and that is my children. Mary Gillespie at the Braille Institute in Los Angeles. They have grown up around a person that is disabled. We always tried to keep everything as normal as possible, but yet they accept disability as a natural and normal thing. And now my grandchildren are accepting it too. My little granddaughter uh, just takes it. We have explained to her that grandma's eyes and ears are broken. And she accepts that as a natural and normal thing and doesn't treat me like I'm something <laughs> off of a different planet at all. A disabled person is still a person. Don't look at the fact that he has a disability. 
look for the fact that he has abilities. Do you think your disability has increased the compassion of the people close to you? I suppose it has, but actually I try very, very hard to get them to relax and feel comfortable around me. I don't want them to feel uncomfortable, so I try to say natural, normal things like I see or something like that. I don't try to get them to say, feel this object. I try to get them to say, see this object and feel comfortable and normal around me. What things in life give you the most joy? Naturally, my family does first. But being able to come in here to Braille has helped a lot. Of course, I have learned many, many things through the years as I have come in here. I've learned to use the computer, and I'm learning to use other devices so that it gives me a more natural and normal life. So things like that. I, I feel like I have plenty of joy in life. Mary Gillespie has worked hard at connecting with others, but the great risk for people whose senses are damaged is isolation. Lacking visual and auditory input from the world, it's easy to become removed from normal interaction with others, detached in silence and darkness. We don't want to just sit back and let the world go by or let the state pay for us or anything. We want to get out and do the same things, too, that every other normal person does. But we have needs that have to be met before we can do it, especially things like equipment. So several of us are on campaigns to try to improve those situations. Right now, I am seeking employment myself. What sort of work would you like to do? Actually, under my circumstances, just about anything I can find, but I really would like to get into something with computer. I love computer work, and I have my own, so I really would like to do something like that or probably some type of proofreading. Mary today volunteers several days a week at the Braille Institute, where she checks pages of children's books and school books published in Braille. She's worked in the press department there for a decade now and refers to herself as the press mama. Mary lives in an apartment at a home for the deafblind in Los Angeles. At nearly 80, she's battled a few medical problems but still gets around now using a cane. She regularly visits family in nearby San Fernando Valley. When my girls were growing up, I was trying my best to teach them good morals. But someone who was what she called a friend of the family would tell the kids that because I couldn't see and hear, I wasn't aware of how things had changed since I was able to see and hear. That was not true. In fact, the kids wished to cram me at times. I didn't know as much as I did find out. 
<laughs> so uh, I feel that it is extra important for deafblind to keep up with what's going on so people can't accuse them of being off into space. Do you have a favorite television program? Not really. I just watch the news and that's about all. There are too many television programs on I don't approve of, so I just watch the news. It's very, very important for deafblind to keep up on the news. There are too many people that think deafblind live off in a world all their own and don't have any idea what's going on around them. So I feel it's very important for deafblind to keep up on what's going on. Do you believe in God? Very definitely. In the first place, God, I trust God and he has always been of help to me and he has never failed me. So the, the runner-up answer, of course, was we take one day at a time. But yes, I very definitely not only believe in, but I know for sure. I never have that feeling of being abandoned either. In fact, it's just the opposite. You wouldn't believe me if I'd tell you some of the scrapes he gets me out of. So I certainly am not abandoned by him and neither are any disabled people. So you do not feel that the mere fact that you have your disability means that God is not protecting you. No, in fact, I honestly and truly feel that he allowed me to be this way and so that I can do what I can to try to help other disabled and other deafblind. I not only do not feel he abandoned me, but I feel that he is supporting me and helping me so that I can be of help to other deafblind. How does he support and help you? When you have kids, you can't, you really and truly cannot raise them alone. You can do all you can, but you can't be there every second of the time. So he has watched over my girls and taken care of them, and they're grown up, married, and as I say, I've got my three grandchildren now, so he has kept his promise to watch over them. I appreciate what I do have in terms of physical health and the fact that I am able-bodied and I have my vision and hearing. Joe McNulty of the Helen Keller National Center. Years ago, people with sight and hearing were on the staff and the people who were deafblind were the, quote, clients. Over the years, um, deafblind people have been going to college, earning college degrees, postgraduate degrees, and now are in the professional positions of actually doing the training and the teaching of others who are deafblind. And that brings a dynamic into the mix that we as sighted hearing people can't offer. Again, the technology with the Braille, um, the Braille displays are, are absolutely terrific. Uh, it's allowed people to enter into careers 
where they can access a line that's on their computer screen at work or at home, and it comes out in Braille. They can type in on the regular computer um, keyboard what they want to send back to their boss or a coworker. They can check it themselves for grammar and punctuation by reading the Braille, hit the send button, and it goes off to their coworker. They can keep a copy of it in Braille or on a computer disk, and their coworker or boss can keep a copy in regular print, and they both have it on their computers. Advances in technology have helped to erode the walls of isolation that traditionally have confined people who are deaf and blind. They also turn to other people to ease their journey. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston and The Network Incorporated. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Journey of the Deaf-Blind, is Humankind Program number 138. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org, and at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.